Guitars, tube amps, heavy metal, hard rock music, and rock bottom. Rage and self-loathing. Our next guest talks about a different type of recovery, not from substance abuse disorder, but from an intense, raging anger. Standing on stage in front of 38,000 people with a successful band didn't help him. It took a reckoning with his thinking and a rationality with what was happening in his head. Tune in now for our next guest as he describes a 43-year journey, a 13-week intense recovery process, and a new life that may not be perfect but is in tune again. A chance for a future that sounds better every day. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rockin' Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast. Dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you? To always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma, and judgment-free zone. Recovery Talks, right now. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. And my very special guest today is Curran Murphy. I'm so honored to have you here, man, because you come highly regarded. And I want to just kind of tell our listeners how we got here. Why are you, these two guys talking? I wrote this article in the Devil Strip. I do a monthly column called Sober Chronicles. And uh, one of the ones where I was, you know, at the end of, I don't know what else to write about, tired of being Mr. Fancy Pants and talking all about me. I put this little line and said, if anybody out there knows some badasses that are making it, some lanterns, lighthouses, hit me up. And, you know, sure enough, I got an email from Dr. Phil at Portage Path Behavior Health. And he was like, oh, we need to talk. We need to talk. So he hooked me up with a meeting down there. And I, and I wasn't expecting it. I was just kind of expecting to take a tour. And they had a full staff with the president, the whole thing. And, and I'm like, what? Did I wear the right trousers? You know. And I met Emily and she r- referred me to you. And that's where we had our conversation. Geez, maybe even a month, maybe a little longer than a month ago. And I asked you if you could be be here for us. And you were absolutely gracious and said, yeah, you would certainly do that, you know. So let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. And you can correct me because, you know, oftentimes I don't get it right. So you were born in, wow, in the 70s. You're kind of of my generation, okay? Heavy metal guitar player, badass, composer, songwriter, and record producer. And you build tube amplifiers, which we could probably do a whole podcast, dude, on that. But I don't think our producers would let me do that. I know. I know. I'm looking at them right now in your background. Shameless, shameless self-promote. Believe me, I set up the props at, at That's nine awesome, dude. Well, we're going to let you talk about that. <laughs> you started your uh, career in 97 playing guitar for a lot of different bands. One of them was Nevermore, Annihilator. And your current band right now is Shatter Messiah. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And you run a successful recording studio right here in Ohio. It's called uh, Custom Audio Mutation. And you also make amplifiers. And uh, from what I understand from my past experiences working uh, with Earthquaker Devices, which I worked for for about five years doing international stuff, um, you're pretty pretty highly regarded, man. They, they dig you in the high game world. They totally dig you out there. Yeah. It's a uh, wonderful luck that uh, what I like to do and what I like to play and build. Uh, other people seem to like it too. So <laughs> so we have a, another common thread because I, I worked for Marshall Amps for about two years in their transition. That's a whole different podcast we could do. We're not going to go there. But we're, we're really not here to talk about 
music, guitars, tone, amps, you know, which I would love to talk to you about being a fellow guitar player. But what we're really here to talk about is recovery. And I just want to say out front to our, our listeners today that Corinne is not really here to talk about addiction and alcoholism, which is a really a common theme. He's really talked about mental health, which I think timely wise is just something that a lot of people want to hear about is what's going on because we're all just so jacked these days with the change in our life in 2020. 2020 was a whatever I can call it, but I can't call it on, on a podcast. I'm, I think they'll cut that out, okay? <laughs> okay, all right. And I understand one of the issues that you had to deal with was dealing with, you know, the mental health perspective of anger management, okay? So, man, I'm so anxious to hear you talk and to not hear me talk. What I'd like you to do is just kind of tell me your story, man. What was it like for you, you know what I mean, when you were coming into the awareness that you had an issue? I can relate to you what it was like for me to discover I was an alcoholic and the denial I went through, right? But I, I'm really curious to hear what it was like for you to come to that awareness where you said, you know, I might need some help here. I might need some help. So tell me your story, man. Well, if we want to start at the rock bottom, I guess, the rock bottom for me where I, I realized you know, uh-oh, my life is not, my perception of my life is not good. Where, where it's going was I had had an incredibly horrific public mental violent breakdown at a show I was playing. We can rewind to get into that, but the fallout from that literally was my wife, Lisa, uh, after me hiding for three days in my recording studio in, in a, you know, the bottomless pit of self-loathing and self-hatred, her saying to me, this isn't the marriage that I want. And, you know, Lisa and I have, were married and together years prior to this, but I've, I've always had anger and rage and violent outbursts and leaving for three or four days, throwing away the phone, all these control fallacies that I learned about in, in therapy and through Portage Path and pathways, the program that I went through. And that all, when she said that, I was still in the grips of the fallout from literally the psychotic, violent, the next person that talks to me, I'm gonna rip your eyes out of your head. Horrific, terrifying, violent behavior. And so how the physical and the mental all tie together, I was so physically crippled from the, the anger and the self-loathing and all the things that I had been carrying with me for 43 years, you know, from a little kid all the way up to, you know, when this final break happened, that was really it because that was the, the, the ultimate red flag current. I don't want this marriage. I don't want this kind of marriage. And so I got on the internet, my analytical controlling mind, like, okay, I got to find somebody to talk to. Well, I'm not suicidal. You know, and all I could find were suicide numbers. And I didn't, my self-loathing is so deep, was so deep rooted. And I still have some, you know, of course, it's all going to carry it with me forever. But, um, well, I can't call a suicide prevention hotline because I'm not suicidal. And so what if I'm in line to talk to somebody and somebody else can't get through and they kill themselves and it's my fault? Like that kind of mental twist. And I can't go get help though. I need help because somebody else deserves it more than me. Stumbled down to a local doctor's office and just said, hi, I'm having a mental breakdown and I want to I want to douse the world in gasoline. Can you help me? And they said, well, are you suicidal? No, no, no. Here's this number for this place called Portage Paths. 
and they're downtown Akron. We'll give you their number. You can just walk in. And that's what I did. And I was such a mess, a literal disaster because I didn't even have a job at that point. I was unemployed. You know, the financial aid lady had to come out from behind her desk to fill out the forms for me. Just ask me questions. All right. Your name, your address, you need to contact him. And she filled it out for me. If you want to talk about just the luckiest of lucky strokes of places to literally hunched over, how physically small can I make myself? Because everything hurts so bad. I don't want, if I make myself smaller, the pain will be smaller. The physical embodiment of suppression. <laughs> and, and so they, I did an interview and, and, all, and all this stuff. And they said, well, we have this program called Pathways. And uh, it's a group therapy thing. And uh, that was the start. So that was the the red flag was, and if you unravel it, you know, kind of the thing that I learned in group therapy is, you know, well, the situation is make, I'm feeling this way in this situation. Why am I feeling this way? What, what's, what are the triggers? What are the, let's unravel this, you know, ball of yarn and get down to what the actual issue is. Yeah, man, and, I get it. you know, the trigger for me getting, into pathways, the positive trigger was how much my wife loved me that she said, I don't want this kind of marriage. Something has to change. She was telling me she wanted to be married to me. She wants to be married to me and love me and spend the rest of her life with me, just like we promised each other on our wedding day. And it ties into what I learned in pathways, uh, these five core beliefs that are every waking moment of my life, they are, there, there are these things, these five core beliefs that are true for every human being is, you know, I'm capable, anything I want, need, blah, blah, blah. I'm good enough. You know, means, meaning I deserve anything I want or need. Uh, I'm worthy of those things. I'm lovable and I'm safe. So I'm capable. I'm good enough. I'm lovable. I'm worthy. I'm safe. Those five core beliefs are absolute truths, just like gravity, <laughs> just like Sun, sun's coming up tomorrow. Sun's going to set tonight. The earth scientifically spins on its axis. When I breathe in oxygen, it goes into my blood bloodstream. These are absolute truths of what happens, these five core beliefs. And I was able to, in those 13 weeks of group therapy, learn those things. That was the start of that journey that I am still on today. And I will be for the, for the rest of my life. Being a musician and a touring musician, you know, you meet thousands and thousands of people and other musicians and recovering alcoholics and drug addicts and, and recovery. And, and every day is a day of uh, recovery. Every day, you know, I have challenges, things that pop up in my life that challenge my, I'm good enough, I'm capable, I'm lovable, I'm worthy, I'm safe. Even something as simple as turning on the video camera for this, I can remember when that would have made me go, scream. Can I swear? Because yeah, I'm a plain spoken man. Fuck this we're shit. Okay. Fuck yeah. this guy. Fuck. Throw the camera. Kick over. You know. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And I'd be really glad that I you can't get through the screen. And it's all your fault that you're making me feel stupid, that I'm a fucking I get moron. You. And because, I get you. Oh, I get wait, you. Wait, there's the little camera button down. The little like, oh, hey, there's the camera. <laughs> I did it to myself. What I'm really curious about it, what I love about our stories that are similar is that when I did the big crash, when the bus crashed, right, blew up in flames, 
I mean, I can feel, when you were describing your story to me, I was going back and feeling the feelings of pain and shame that I felt when I was in St. Thomas because that was a long period of trying to get it right and couldn't get it right and thinking all kinds of like, well, if I do this and if I do that and if I, if I don't, there had to be signs before, right? There had to be signs. Where did they first start showing up for you? You know, to where you were like, you know, something's happening here. Something's happening here. Did, was it school? Was it being a kid? I mean, we could talk about inner childhood and growing up because a lot of us suffer from, you know, early childhood trauma. A lot of us do. Okay. And I, you know, I don't think we've got enough podcast time to go through all my guests to, to go through their childhoods, but I know that we can all acknowledge that that's a big component for us. Okay. So, but then, but then we become aware because when I was, when I was growing up, I just kind of thought my family was different. I didn't know like it was really weird and I, I didn't really pay attention to it. I blocked it out. I do know that there were signals and signs for me, you know what I mean? Self-esteem issues, right? You know, for me, early abuse issues with, you know, oh, I, I like smoking that or, or, or I, w- I want to do that again. I like hanging out with you guys to do that. So tell me your story about when you started seeing, wait a minute, something's happening here. Well, I've got a story my mom told me when I was like two or three years old. And she said, you know, I'm sure it was after some incident at school uh, where she said, I, I don't understand, Kurt. You, you've always been so angry. Mm. Always. Mm. Even when you were a little kid on a little trike and the little the, one of the wheels would get stuck on the dining room table and you would get so mad and you would take the trike and you would smash it against the table in rage as a two-year-old. Mm. Right. So, but, but I know, I know, I know specifically where my issues of anger are, what they're rooted in, where they come from and where they developed. It was in, you know, Catholic school, first through eighth grade, St. Thomas, the apostle Catholic school in Elkhart, Indiana. And it was being Elkhart, Elkhart, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. uh, RV capital. uh Absolutely. It was look, People find solace and support and good things in religion. For me, it was the exact opposite. So Catholicism relies on a couple of things. One, original sin. You're not good enough to get into heaven without God. Jesus. You're not worthy of, you know, you're not level. You're, you're, if you don't do what we say, do you're going to burn in hell forever. So conflicts with dogma. Right. You know what I mean? Fundamental conflict with dogma. Yeah. So all of those things were ground into me, obviously. You know, going to church four days a week, extremely religious stepfather. Oh, um, oh. You know, and, and now, now all of these things have happy ending because I'm here right now. Right. There you go. Being made fun of because I was, you know, my mom and my dad put, put us into Catholic school because it was better than public school. They were trying to do good for us, but we were not wealthy. We were not rich. Right. You know, you have to pay extra money to go to those schools. So I didn't have the, the, the popular clothes. I didn't have the cool toys. I was the poor kid with the weird name that that rhymes with urine right and i and couple that with my self-esteem issues with my self-loathing not feeling good enough lovable worthy or safe and acting out because of it so kids would tease me kids would be mean to me kids would pete would would pick the, the mentally handicapped kid over me in gym class and then they'd argue in front of the teacher who has to take current oh man I know that. I know that story. I know that story. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, you know, when you get picked on and the teachers are laughing at you or the teachers are telling you to shut up and sit down, Curran, or, you know, they, they wouldn't pick on you, Curran, if you would just sit down and shut up. Um, 
I learned very easily that my anger, I could grab a desk, pick it up, throw it across the room, injure three or four kids all at once, swear, curse, and scream and get away with what I want. But the rage was how I protected myself because it became a mantra in my life. Nobody is ever going to make me feel the way that I feel right now again. And if they do, I will punish them. I will wound them. I will injure them. You are going to wake up in the morning for the rest of your life looking at your face and wondering, where's my ear? Because I bit it off and ate it. Like insane, violent, horrific rage. The scars on your body are, you'll never forget me. So was there any intervention? Did any teacher come to you and say, look, this kid, we need to intervene here. And I, I again, I'm not a Catholic basher, 12 years Catholic education here. Okay, I'm not. I believe that, that there are good people. I really do. I believe there are good people. Probably for me, more good than than weird ones, right? I mean, there's a couple of priests we're not going to talk about, right? But for me, there were. In the grand scheme of the universe, I, I would say that there are more good human beings and good people and people that want to do good than there are bad. I I believe that. I do. I just do. Right. Um, right. But what what I'm saying is our common stories is that there, the, in that experience, there was no intervention. I was in a divorced family in a Catholic school, right? Yeah. What? Well, that was like, what? And there was no like, hey, let's let's make this kid, you know, aware that he's okay. I think that there would have been some intervention there that would have been okay. That would have been okay for me. My anger was something, it's that kind of thing like, you know, Hunter S. Thompson wrote about it in his book, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where it's like, the only hope at this point was we had gone so far. We had been so abusive. We were so far beyond the line of decency that anybody in any position of power w- would not believe it. So they wouldn't bring the hammer down. And that was the thing. I was so, like my last week of eighth grade, like getting a detention was a big deal. Getting three detentions, I'd spend you getting four, you're expelled. I had five detentions my last two weeks of eighth grade. They just wanted me out. They didn't, they, they were not <laughs> equipped they didn't know how. Nobody yeah. knew how. Yeah. I remember once my mom did send me to take me to a psychiatrist, but I think my mom was sitting in the room and all it did was make me feel worse and hate myself more. Yeah. You're was, not going to talk. You're it, not going to talk. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, there were teachers that, you know, recognized that I was creative and funny and, and a good kid. And, but I just, I was so damaged, damaged. Did this motivate you to find a tribe? I mean, did did certain types of people kind of stick out to you as far as they'll accept you? Because I know with my story, the kids that were rode around in the vans and had carpet in them and, you know, smoked left-handed cigarettes, they accepted me, right? And I was like, oh, I belong with somebody. Somebody thinks I'm okay. Somebody, th-. And so I went off on a road with the guys that were the druggies and the musicians and the, the weird people. I mean, they were really good musicians because... Pff, Frankly, we just sat around a room, tried to tune for four hours, right? But and that's really not funny for that's a musician joke, but it's really not funny. But where, did you did you find yourself going off on that dirt road to find other people like you? What what happened there? Um, no, it was more of you know the other weird, nerdy, fat, shy, poor kids. You know that, that in Catholic school it was that you know there were three or four of us and. Um, I don't think we all really liked each other. I think it was just 
you know, we sank to the bottom of the barrel and it's like, all right, well, I guess that we'll all just hang on to each other. So we don't drown. Even though if, you know, Brian Hicks, the captain of the football team came over and said, Hey, Curran, why don't you come hang out with us at our lunch table? We like you now. Bye. Right. Right. You know, so how did music, how did music play into this? Where did that start? Music started very late for me. I actually did not like music. Um, because I was traumatized in school by the school, the music teacher. I mm. uh, didn't understand what he was explaining. So I had kind of tried to do the assignment and then he said, all right, we'll play it. I'm like, well, I don't understand. What do you mean? I don't know how to. And she's like, well, so you're an idiot. And you're sitting here wasting everybody's time. Curran, go sit down. What got me into music was uh, a Def Leppard song, Pour Some Sugar on Me, big rock anthem. And that that got me to at least enjoy music. I went out and bought the cassette, wore out seven or eight copies of it. What got me into playing guitar was my cousin, Mike Belmont, uh, had a Squire Stratocaster and he had, I had started to like Metallica. Metallica came out with a video one and, um, oh, I like this song. So I had the Metallica cassette and we were on family vacation in Minnesota and he had the tablature for one. Oh, yeah. And he showed me like, well, you don't need to read music. You don't have to go take lessons and be around anybody that's going to... And this is all on retrospect. I don't have to make myself vulnerable to people being mean to me or saying, no, Kern, you don't have any talent. You're too stupid. You're not good enough for this. You don't... I'm not going to... Yeah. I can I can buy this piece of music and I don't have to read music. It's, it's, it's numbers. Right. And there's the line of the string where my finger's supposed to go on the fret. And that was the start. And so I went to a music store, a cassette store, and they had the sheet music for $3.99. And, you know, I figured out how to get 40 bucks to buy a friend of mine's down the street, his cheap plywood, you know, coily cord with, mas Terrible. with masking tape on it to make the connection work. And I'd plug into my dad's stereo that had the, micro the microphone in and you'd have to put a cassette in and press play, record, and pause. And then it was an amplifier yep. and I could turn it up and get... I gotcha. <laughs> and all and all, all I did for like the first two or two years or so, maybe three years. No, no, the first two years was play just the opening. That's all I could manage. And my mom like... And I couldn't even tune. Mom, my guitar's out of tune. Mom. Like I couldn't hear it. And... um. You know, my mom always said that. She's like, it always shocked me that you started playing guitar because even when you sang as a little kid, Kern, you were out of key and tone deaf. I'm like, are you complimenting me, mom, or are you shitting on me? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, wow. I, you know, it's not my mom. I don't think my mom understands how she says things, how they come across. But um, because I've confronted her on things like that before. She's like, well, that's not what I meant. I'm like, well, but that's how it sounds. <laughs> so, you know, fast forward through a, a long road. I mean, my road to get to to where I started realizing that I needed to be well and starting to feel well. You know, obviously we can't get into that. I mean, but, you know, I, I do know that there was a transformation when I finally, something clicked. And for me, it was a tough old bird uh, at Edwin Shaw that sat me down and made me aware of things about my brain and how my brain worked, right? And that was the difference because that was the paradigm shift for me where I started thinking, I'm not a bad person. I'm a person that may be a little sick and need some help, right? I need to really get well. And that for me was the understanding of the addiction of what had happened because I had conditioned my body and my brain to be used to drugs and alcohol, right? And once I understood that a long-term period of abstinence 
was going to be the only thing for me to start me down the road to figuring out all the other shit that was wrong with me, right? Yeah. Oh, you that's know? the hardest one, part too. But once I got past that, so, you know, you get to Portage Path Behavioral Health, you start seeing some significant differences. Now tell me, what, what were the first few miles like when you first started realizing, oh, I can be well, I can be well. So how did that work for you? I didn't realize the I can be well, I can be well part of things till maybe eight or nine weeks in to the program. Where you're going five five days a week, three, four hours a day. I learned really quickly that therapy is so counterintuitive. And I know, like I said, I, I can see people medicating with alcohol and drugs and, and um, you know, are medicating with possessions, things like that, to make themselves feel better because they don't want to sort out why they don't feel good. For me, the counterintuitive element of therapy is to feel good, you have to feel bad. I had to get to a safe place. Group, the group therapy environment for me was a safe place where I could feel that self-loathing and that self-hatred for myself that I'd had for 43 years and figure out why do I feel this way? Why do I feel like I hate myself? Why do I remember playing a festival show in Wacken, Germany in front of 38,000 people and standing on that stage playing in one of the, the best metal bands of ever with one of the greatest guitar players of ever, keeping up with that guitar player and looking at around and going, everyone's going to find out that I shouldn't be here, that I'm a hack. I'm a fucking loser. I hate myself. I hate, I, I used to. Oh man, I so relate to that. I so relate to that. Literally. That head talk, that head talk that's going on in your that brain. Every, You're going, everybody what? knows. Why am I here? They got to know. They got to know. Everybody They're going to figure me knows. out. It's going to happen. The roadie who plugged in my amplifier, who I who doesn't speak English, who I've never met before, he knows that I shouldn't be here. He's, he's telling yeah. his friends in German. Right. He's telling his and, friends in German right now yeah. that I suck, that, that, I, I'm, that I'm, I'm terrible, right? And they're all looking at me when I'm not singing. I get it. Oh, dude, I get that. So that, I, that, I, that I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not safe and I'm not lovable. Get the f*** out of here. Man, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. And I'm, and I'm digging the fact that at some point you kind of had that 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 moment of clarity. Yeah. Right? Where you started seeing, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tell me about that. Tell me about the the, the moment where, you know, I, I call it, you know, that where for me it was, it was, you know, not so much the circling down the drain moment because that's when things were really going bad for me. But when the, that hopeful moment where I started to see, maybe I can find the handle to the door out of here. Maybe I can find the handle to the door. You know, again, tying into that counterintuitive element of therapy where to be able to deal with pain and sadness and discomfort and vulnerability and rejection, all these things that, I, that tie into my uh, self-loathing and self-hatred that I have had for, you know, it was literally that we were doing this exercise called this uh, something, it, it's an acronym, but it ends on the letter D for dispute. So you have to dispute the original point of reference thinking, the uh, the thinking that makes me trigger me to, you know, lash out with anger, lash out with, you know, violence and dispute it. And, I, and I'm sitting there doing the exercise and it's a group of 13, 14 people and we're all in there and there's the facilitators and we're working on me. We're doing current. 
And I'm like, well, but I don't understand how to dispute this. I don't understand the dispute part of it. I get the first three. Those are easy because those I've been doing my entire life. But the dispute and the facilitator said, well, current, the dispute is, you know, your statement is that you're not lovable, that nobody could possibly love current. And so therefore I'm not lovable. That's ingrained. That was ingrained in me that I am unlovable. So I have to do all these mentally ill things, control fallacies and and uh, acting out and all these things so that if I do this, everyone will like me. If I buy all the recording equipment and buy all the music gear and pay for the tours out of my own pocket, the band will have to let me be in their band. They'll have to love me. And then when they don't do what I want, then I become crazy and enraged. Okay. So the dispute ended up being current. Of course, you're lovable. This is the facilitators telling me this. Current, it's obvious that you're lovable because Lisa loves you, my wife. And right then, right then and there, I physically felt some snap, a physical something broke. It was a painful snap, but it was over in a second. Something literally cracked, and I started crying. And they're like, "So, Curran, what's the dispute? What do you? What's the word? What do you say?" It's like I, I'm lovable, and I just started crying. I'm love, and they're like, and the whole group was around me, and I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. And they're all like, "Well, Curran, you have." You have to say it again louder because some of us didn't hear it. It's like, I'm lovable. Oh no, louder, Kern. I'm lovable. Uh, and and that was because those five core beliefs I talked about earlier, you know, I'm capable, I'm good enough, I'm lovable, I'm worthy, I'm safe. If I got one, I get all five because they're all tied together. Just like the hand, just like a, a, a network of roots under a tree. If you've got one root, you can get to the rest of the tree. You can get to the trunk, get to the spine of the issue. For me, my moment was in the chapel at St. Thomas Hospital. It was right around uh, the recovery weekend where we do for, you know, those of us who participate in a 12-step program. But I'm in that chapel and I walk in and I'm, I'm saying something like, you know, I'm sitting in a place with, which is a memory of my youth. And I just realized I just can't do this anymore. And it, and it broke. The dam broke. There weren't enough Kleenex in the city of Akron, Ohio at that point in time to stop me. And I remember this poor, nice old lady came over and she, she touched me on the shoulder because my shirt was wet from crying. And she touched me on the shoulder and she said, oh, you poor thing. And she gave me her handkerchief and she just put her hand on me and she, and she was just the kindest gesture. So obviously for you, as we move towards the bright light of happiness and a, a new life, tell me what your life is like now, dude. Tell me what it's like for you. My life is absolutely phenomenal. It is amazingly wonderful. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, I went to therapy for 13 weeks and I, you know, silver bullet and I'm, and I'm happy every single day of my life. Right, exactly. Hey, oh, you're all new, man. Remanufactured. We got new tubes. Everything new tubes, is re-bias. great. Everything you're is good, perfect right? all the time. No, <laughs> everything is, everything is really, really good. Right. Everything is wonderful. Every, sometimes things aren't good. I have, I had a bad day a couple of days ago where I, Started to do a couple of old habits, get mad. Mm. Yep. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm with so you. So I'm going to pump the brakes. I'm going to call. I'm going to I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to walk away and I'm going to watch YouTube. So look, my life right now is great, but I work every single day. I, I work unconsciously now on my five core beliefs, on new points of reference, on, yeah, I can feel myself getting triggered with my frustration of not feeling like I'm good enough to build guitar amps so I'm not worthy to take people's money I'm not capable of doing but that's not true because I am all of those things and it's I'm doing something new that I don't of course I'm I'm failing right now because it's new 
I'm celebrating a one-year anniversary from a mental breakdown, a meltdown that I had last December that landed me in the hospital. Not suicide, but just berserko, uncontrolled violence. And it was triggers about self-loathing and not... It never goes away, dude. We only have a daily reprieve. We only have a daily reprieve for me, you know? All, all I can do is be good right now. That's it. That's it. It is going to happen again, but I'm not scared of it happening again. I'm not scared of the fact that I am going to get upset or get angry or have a bad day. I have a day where I'm, you know, I'm in such a mood. I'm going to turn off all the lights and... But, but I'm going to get through it because I can get through it because I've gotten through it before and I've gotten through it 99 times better than that one time last year. But these things happen. I, I remember the turning point for me in my life was, was um, you know, obviously some childhood stuff. And I, I, I somehow found a picture on, on Fearbook Facebook of me playing baseball in Akron, okay, for West Akron Baseball League. And I'm like 10 or 11 years old. And I look into the eyes of that kid and I see that scared, frightened kid. I see it in the picture, dude. And so I, I got a copy of that picture and I keep it here. And, you know, I oftentimes will talk to that kid. So my question to you, you know where I'm going, right? I like to ask our guests as we wrap up this podcast, I say, if you could go back and talk to that person you were before you found that awareness, this place where you're living now, if you could go back to talk to the old current, what would you say? Um, we're talking about an Uber, a time travel Uber here, okay? You get in, it comes pick you up the front yard, you're going, oh, dude, we're going back. We're going to go back and, and talk to any point in time in the, in the mess of who you used to be. You know what I mean? What would you do? What would you say to that person? There are two roads to that. One, I would be scared to do it. I, would, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, of course. Because all the things that happened to me have gotten me to here. And I wouldn't want to change I wouldn't want to change here for anything. What message of hope would you send? My biggest thing would be I would tell that the little Curran, I'd say, hey Curran, fuck everybody else. You're lovable, you're capable, you're worthy, you're safe, you're good enough. Be as weird as you want to be. People are going to break your heart and betray you and all these these things are going to happen, but damn it, you're awesome. You are awesome. More people are going to look at you with envy than anger and hatred. And so just be cool and you'll make everything else cool for everybody else too. Everyone else that comes into your life will be good if you're good to yourself. Man, I can't thank you enough for being here with us and our listeners and sharing your story, man. I mean, you know, just by doing this, you know, someone out there is going to listen to your story and go, I get that. That's who I am. And somebody else, you're a lighthouse, bro. You're a lighthouse. Thank you very much. You're holding up the lantern for other people. And I say to a lot of people who say to me, well, dude, why, you know, why do you do this stuff? And I say, you know, for me, I get to take out that great big pink eraser from fourth grade and I get to erase some of that part of me that I don't like that I used to be when I reach out to do things to help other people, you know, and that's what you did here today, brother. You know what I mean? You're out there helping people by being here. So I just want to say to our listeners, Thank you for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks. Stay tuned for more episodes with more guests as they share their journey from darkness to the light. And until then, everybody stay standing and steady on. Rock and Recovery Minute. Recovery rocks. Reintegrating into the normal life, I felt like it was an easy transition because I was just high all the time. Frank is a recent veteran who brought his addiction home with him following his service in Iraq. 
He was willing to accept help only when he realized that he was completely powerless to stop on his own. In life, you're told that you're special, you can do whatever you really put your mind to. And it's true as far as life goes, but as an addict goes, everyone wants to think that they're special and unique, and they have to get to that humbling state where they realize that they're not. That addiction will take hold of any gender, any race. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. Once you manipulate your mind to think that it's necessity and survival, you're no longer that gender or that race. You're an addict. Hear the full interview and learn more at rockandrecovery.com. This has been a Rock and Recovery Minute. Recovery rocks. Raising awareness, removing stigma, and offering hope. Hi, I'm Garrett Hart for Rock and Recovery. It's the nightly radio show that offers upbeat rock songs and inspirational messages for people in recovery from addiction, trauma, and mental health disruptions. It's for families and friends as well. Rock and Recovery is broadcast every night, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern at 91.3 FM in Akron, Ohio, and at 90.7 FM in Youngstown, Ohio. The show can be heard at thesummit.fm. You can also listen to Rock and Recovery on our 24-7 radio channel streaming at rockandrecovery.com. We've got a free app for your phone so you can listen anytime, anywhere. Everyone needs a little R&R. Rock and recovery. Recovery rocks.